All right, Alexander, let's discuss the document leaks that came out. We had two leaks in about three, three days. Uh, both of those leaks were reported on by the New York Times. The one leak on Thursday focused on Ukraine. The leak that came out, I believe it was Saturday morning. Um, that one focused not only on Ukraine, but also on the Middle East and China. And uh, the leak that came out on Saturday seems to have really spooked the Pentagon and uh, the intel officials of the collective West. A lot of debate about whether these documents are real or not, and a lot of debate as to whether the information in these documents are real or not. And I think we need to differentiate between that because when I first saw these leaks, my first impression was, oh, the New York Times is reporting on it. Eh, I'm kind of suspicious there. And, and the numbers, a lot of the numbers didn't add up. And I'm talking about the leaks that were released on Thursday, the ones that were specific to Ukraine. Then I, uh, I listened to your video. I, I got some information from, from other people who know about these things better than, than I do. And I came to the conclusion that the documents are genuine. Now, the information inside those documents, maybe some things are real, maybe some things are not. I think the same holds true for the leak on Saturday as well. The documents appear to be genuine, like these are real documents from Intel officials that are being uh, shared around in, this, in, the, in the case of Saturday by the five eyes, are being shared around by the, by the five eyes. Now, is, is the information in those documents accurate? Is it, are they presenting correct numbers? Is, uh, is the information something that is influencing decision-making? I think that's a whole different story. So what is your first impressions with the document leaks on Thursday and the ones that came out over the weekend? I, I've come to exactly the same view as you have. I think they're genuine documents. I think they're authentic documents. There's no convincing denials or suggestions that they're not. The U.S. is becoming increasingly worried about the fact that these documents are appearing and that they're circulating. It looks as if some of them go back to January that they've been around, floating around the internet for longer than people realised. But I, just like you, I think these are genuine documents. It doesn't mean that their contents are correct. And I think that's a vital distinction to make. So, for example, a lot of people say, well, you know, they've given absolutely wrong estimates about Russian and Ukrainian casualty numbers. When you actually look back and see what the US and Ukraine have been saying about casualty numbers, you can see where the numbers in the documents have, might, be, might have been coming from. Doesn't mean that those numbers are accurate. And if you actually look at the document in question, it says that the US has low confidence in these numbers anyway, because clearly they're getting them from Ukraine and clearly they don't trust what the Ukrainians are saying. And you notice that there was that one document which everybody said was distorted because it gave Ukrainian casualties at 16,000 and they bumped them up to 65 and 70,000. And people said that's because the United States, rather the Russians have 
distorted or manipulated this document, it is much more likely to me that given that the US already has low confidence in these numbers, which are clearly coming from Ukraine, somebody in Washington didn't believe that Ukraine had only suffered 16,000 casualties and went back and it was then corrected and a second document was produced with a more realistic total, which I still believe is less than the true number. But, you know, put all that aside, the documents themselves are real. The contents, maybe not, but even the fact that the United States is circulating these documents, which may be containing wrong information, is important in itself. It tells us that despite all that we hear about this enormous surveillance and operation surveillance that the United States has, it doesn't actually know everything. It's getting incorrect information about many things. It's a mixture, exactly as you would expect, of some accurate data, a lot of accurate data, and a lot of misleading and incorrect data. And it's all cobbled together, mixed up with each other. It ends up, I suspect, in the National Security Council, where it's probably processed by Jake Sullivan, and it's passed on to Biden, and it's on this information that he's making his decisions. Not only Biden, uh, Alexander, in the UK as well, they're making decisions based on these documents. And not only are they making decisions, they're coming out with media narratives and talking points. And I did a video on this over the weekend because I noticed that one of the documents talked about 97% of Russia's military committed to Ukraine. Now, we can interpret what, what it means by committed. 97% of the forces around Ukraine are committed, but Russia still has their forces committed in, in, the, rest of, in the rest of Russia to protect Russia as well. Or, you know, you have 100,000 troops in Belarus, and so the committed number doesn't take into account Belarus, whatever. We, we can debate the meaning of the words as far as 97% is committed and all that stuff. I don't think that's the main point. The main point to me is that these documents, they, they talk about 97% of Russian military. Ben Wallace gave an interview in February and he obviously latched on to that 97% number so that then he can give that interview to UK media and paint the narrative that Russia's forces are completely bogged down in Ukraine because Ben Wallace said 97% of Russia's forces are committed to Ukraine. I think that shows that these documents are also being used to shape the narrative of, of leaders in the, in the collective West, in this instance, Ben Wallace. So, so they're... They're, they're influencing not only how Ben Wallace sees things, but they're influencing how Ben Wallace is interacting with the media and what the media is reporting on this conflict. And if this is wrong information, well, then we can see the, the problem that this presents. Absolutely. That's completely correct. Now, I'm going to say something. We also let off people like Ben Wallace, because if I was Ben Wallace and somebody came along to me, and said that the Russians have 97% of their military committed to Ukraine. I would query that. Once upon a time, if you read, you know, histories of the Second World War, for example, 
That's exactly what used to happen. I mean, you came along to Churchill, you know, I'm talking about Churchill because he's the political leader I know most about because, you know, he's British and, you know, I live in Britain and we talk a lot about Churchill. He never took things like this on trust. He said, you know, where did you get that figure? But these people take everything that they're spoon-fed on trust. They believe it. They don't, of course, look at the sources. They don't spend the time that we do poring over what the various information comes at the battlefronts. They don't know clearly very much about the Russian military or how it's structured. Uh, they would know that if they did, it wouldn't take them very long to figure out that this 97% figure is impossible. But they get this information, they assume it's true, Sounds they regurgitate good. it. It makes it sounds good. It makes that it it affects their decision making, and I mean some of this material, wrong material, is undoubtedly provided in good faith. I mean, you know, people who provide it are getting this information. All kinds of intelligence people are getting information. It's passed on. Some of it is provided in good faith. I'm afraid a lot of it isn't. <laughs> I mean, especially if it's information that comes from Ukraine itself. And I think again, there's a unwillingness to acknowledge this, that the Ukrainians have an incentive to spin things in particular ways. And you see this with troop numbers calculations. If you actually go to the original figures, they're almost exactly what Ukraine has been saying. I mean, it's it's that they're not publicly saying. So the Ukrainians are saying in public to to the world, what, in effect, they're saying in private to the US. Somebody in the US couldn't quite believe the 16,000 figure, and the Ukrainians came back with something a little higher. Well, a lot higher, but probably nowhere near high enough. But the Russian totals were just taken as true. Yeah, yeah, I get the, the feeling that uh, some of these documents are Ukraine information being sent to to Washington, and Washington takes that information, and it just believes it. It doesn't really go go yes. deep into, into whether it's accurate. And then they put it in a document yes. and that document goes right back to the Ukraine military. And that's the information that they right. use to to fight this war, yes. to coordinate this war. So, you know, yes. all of it is based on, or a lot of it is based on uh, on faulty numbers and, and a lot of Ukraine propaganda. That's that's the hunch that, that I get. The, the Russians, yeah. the yeah. Russians know what's up though. I mean, the Russian military, yes. they know exactly the state of the Ukraine uh, Ukraine military. I would imagine you know, they know the state of the Ukraine military. They know what weapons are coming in, what weapons the Ukraine military is waiting for. I would imagine they know the, the casualty numbers as well. What are they thinking as they're looking through these documents? Are they taking them seriously? I'm sure they're going to give them a look, but is this really going to to influence how the Russians um, proceed in this conflict, because there is news. We don't know if this can be believed or not, but there is news that came out today that Ukraine is now saying they're going to change up their battle plans because of these documents. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that the Russians looking at these documents factually are finding anything they didn't already know. I think that's the first thing to say. Uh, by the way, I should make it clear, in earlier programs that I've done on my channel, I thought that the Russians probably leaked these documents. I've changed my mind about that. 
Um, I think the consensus now is that they came from somebody within the US system, somebody who's clearly unhappy and has leaked these documents to the internet. And I just wanted to just say that quickly. But I don't think the Russians find anything in the documents themselves that they didn't actually know. I mean, they know about the fact that Ukraine is assembling a force of 12 brigades, for example. They know the size of these brigades. They probably know a lot more about these brigades than these documents are telling us. They almost certainly also know the equipment numbers, the na nature of the equipment that's being provided, all that kind of data, the hard data, they already know. But that doesn't mean that these documents aren't useful to them, because it probably helps them understand better how the Western powers are making their decisions. Bear in mind something, you know, Putin is many things. He was a lawyer. People always forget that. But he was also, of course, an intelligence officer. He wasn't just an intelligence officer. He was the director of an intelligence agency. He was, for a short time, the head of the FSB, which is Russia's counterintelligence agency. So unlike people in the West, he has much more understanding of how to handle intelligence. I mean, Biden doesn't. Ben Wallace clearly doesn't. Putin has hands-on experience of this kind of thing. And I think the Russians will be looking at this and they will be saying to themselves, well, clearly the Western powers haven't really got it all together. <laughs> They're not making their decisions very well. That's probably the overall feeling that they're going to get from these documents. I don't think it's going to change their plans. I don't think it's going to change Ukraine's plans operationally very much either, actually. How can it? I mean, what can Ukraine do other than launch offensives in one of two directions? We know that already. I mean, either Zaporozhye and Kherson region or in the north in northern Donbass. These are the only places where Ukraine apparently is able to launch an offensive. There's some speculation they might try something against Russia itself. But Ukraine's options are very limited indeed. And I don't think they're going to change their plans. I think it's far too late to change their plans. I think their plans are pretty obvious for a long time anyway. Okay, so let me uh, throw at you a bunch of different questions and narratives from these documents. Uh, you mentioned that they, that Ukraine may launch an offensive towards Russia. Just real quick, you're talking about Belgorod, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, yes. what do you make of the news that Ukraine has around 200,000 uh, troops ready for this offensive? Yes, this is coming from Prigozhin, and I think this is probably about right in terms of the total number of troops that form the sort of effective Ukrainian army. Um, but not all of those troops can be committed to this offensive. Um, and if you go back to these documents, it looks like we're talking about a force out of that 200,000, of around 60,000, that can be committed to this offensive, which is a much more realistic figure. And I think it's the one most people had figured out. I think Prigozhin is right. There's 200,000 men in the Ukrainian army who are fighting on the battlefronts or available to fight on the battlefronts. There's another 400,000 who for, you know, performing various rear, rear, duty, rear operation duties, logistical, air defence, that sort of thing. 
as I said, the actual number of troops that can be committed to battle is more likely around 60,000. Okay. So um, the leaks say that the U.S. spies on Ukraine. It spies on many countries, actually. But since we're talking about Ukraine, it spies on Ukraine. And Ukrainian officials claim to not be happy about that. What are your thoughts there? And the documents also claim that there was almost an incident with uh, a UK jet over the Black Sea. And this could have led to some sort of Russia v. NATO instance where the Russians almost shot down this uh, UK jet over the Black Sea. What's it doing over the Black Sea? I don't know. And finally, your comments about what I think is one of the most interesting parts of the leak, which is the air defense. The the depletion of Buk and S-300s, which I find to be plausible. And I remind everybody that uh, Reznikov was touring around Europe. And I know in Greece, as a, as a fact, I know in Greece, what was he looking for? S-300. So it kind of adds up. Anyway, what your thoughts on those three uh, instances? Yeah, I, 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 let, let, let. yeah I, I, absolutely. The, the fact that the United States is trying to spy on Ukraine is about the one positive thing that's coming out of these documents. I would have thought... It was a basic and obvious precaution. I don't think people should be shocked by it. I think the fact that, you know, the US wants to listen in on Zelensky's telephone conversations, mostly a very interesting topic, what Zelensky says on his telephone conversations. Uh, But, I mean, given that the United States has already said that Ukraine is trying to keep lots of things secret from the US, given that Ukraine is in a conflict with Russia, which is a nuclear superpower, given that the United States is providing so much help to Ukraine. I think that it's reassuring that someone in the US has decided that they can't just rely exclusively on what Ukraine is saying, that they need to keep watch and track on what the Ukrainian leaders themselves are up to. So I understand that Ukrainians don't like it. I'm sure they're complaining bitterly about it. I hope it continues. I think that's apparently... Good news and good sense, and I and I want to say that I mean you know I accept that uh, the U.S. spies on everybody. I accept that the fact that the U.S. spies on everybody isn't a good thing. I was uh, wrong, for example, to hack Angela Merkel's phone. Not that she seemed to be too bothered or surprised, but I think in case of Zelensky's phone, I would have thought that was essential. I have to say. It's still nonetheless clear that the U.S. is taking an awful lot from Ukraine on trust. Um, It's also clear that the Ukrainians are able to keep an awful lot of secrets from the U.S. So when the Ukrainians coming along and protesting that they didn't know about this, I don't believe them. I'm sure the Ukrainians figured it out for themselves. After all, we are talking about Ukraine. Ukraine, everybody spies on everybody else. The Ukrainians... Ukrainians spy on each other, the Russians spy on Ukraine, Ukraine tries to spy on Russia, and of course the US spies on Ukraine too. So, I mean, this isn't something that the Ukrainians will be at all surprised about. And I don't think, you know, they might go through the motions of appearing to be angry. But I mean, I think that this is a basic precaution. And I think I would have been astonished if it were otherwise. Let's talk about the other things. Let's talk, first of all, about, first of all, 
What was it? it was the, you, you said, the, the UK, um, the oh, the fighter jet over the Black yeah, Sea, the, 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 the fighter jet incident, Russia NATO. Yes, incident. yes. I'm going to say straightforwardly. I mean, this is for me more a story about Britain than a story about Russia, actually, because the British have been incredibly aggressive in operations over the Black Sea. They sent that frigate, if you remember, this was before the war, very, very close to Sevastopol. Um, the Russians gave ample warning at the time that if it got even closer to Sevastopol, or if the British tried that stunt again, the Russians would respond. The British paid no attention. They'd been sending their aircraft It was a surveillance close, jet, by the looking way. At surveillance, surveillance jet, jet exactly. But, you know, spying on Russian positions. The Russians um, have repeatedly said that they um, take this badly. Bear in mind, they've tried to operate an air exclusion zone around these uh, positions. They've recently reacted very strongly to the presence of a US drone. I think it's entirely plausible that the Russians came very close to shooting this particular um, spy plane down. I think that would have created an incident. Fortunately, it didn't happen. My sense is that over the last few weeks, especially since the, the drone, the American drone was brought down, the West has gradually pulled back and they're not doing it as aggressively as they were. So, you know, this is a dangerous situation. But the, the danger came from the Western powers when I say the Western powers, I mean the United States and Britain carrying out this very, very aggressive surveillance of Russian military facilities in the Black Sea. And um, if you know, the United States were involved in a conflict with Mexico, which incredibly starting to look like it might even happen, um, and if the Russians were providing intelligence to Mexico and they were sending, you know, their own surveillance planes, you know, buzzing. Well, I don't know where they're located, you know, U.S. military installations in Florida or elsewhere on the Gulf of Mexico or whatever it is. The United States would certainly not take kindly to the presence of those Russian aircraft and would react very, very strongly to them. I mean, if you go back to 1999, to the conflict with Yugoslavia, for example, you remember that the Chinese embassy was bombed during that conflict. It's widely known now that the Chinese were providing intelligence information to the Yugoslavs and that the Western powers intentionally bombed the embassy. That's what people in China believe. So, you know, that gives you a nice a sense of what the Western powers can do. The Russians didn't go as far as that, but they've drawn a red line in the Black Sea and they've made it very clear to the British and to the Americans that they will enforce it. And the air defence, to wrap it up. It's the most important and interesting story of all because everything is now beginning to fall into place. We've now got a clear understanding, a much clearer understanding of what the Russian missile assault on the energy system was primarily about. Yes, it has degraded the energy system. Yes, it has made it more vulnerable. Quite probably, once the Ukraine launches its offensive, we'll see more strikes 
on the energy system, perhaps to interfere with railways and all that kind of thing. But first and foremost, its purpose was to deplete Ukraine's air defence system. It's been the single biggest problem that the Russians have faced over the course of this war, because it means that they can't deploy their air force across Ukraine, bombing facilities, bombing uh, Ukrainian troop concentrations far behind the front line, um, because, as I said, these Ukrainian air defences make that impossible. Now they have depleted that air defence system to a very great extent. It's still just about functions, but it's clearly very reduced in level. Already in February there was concerns about it, and now we're starting to see Russian aircraft starting to uh, operate, not just on the battlefronts, they're now operating in Vugladar, in Avdevka, in other places. But they're operating closer to Kiev, in places like Sumy and Chernigov, with these very big precision-guided bombs. They're able to do that. And that's the result of this long air campaign, this missile campaign, that was launched since October. It's to a very great extent all but achieved its purpose. And this is something I think people didn't understand. I mean, I didn't understand it at the time. But as I said, its primary primary purpose clearly was to deplete Ukraine's air defences. And it's, it seems to have worked. Now, bear in mind, if you go back to the wars that the US fought, if you go back to the 1991 Iran, uh, Iraq war, the United States spent months bombing Iraq to deplete its air defences. And it was only after it depleted its air defences that it finally launched its ground offensive. So, in a way, the Russians are doing the same. They've spent all the time, you know, between October and March, they've always known that there was going to be this Ukrainian offensive coming. They've operated against the energy system. They forced Ukraine to use up most of its air defence missiles and they've degraded the air defence system to the point where their air force can start operating more freely again. The US is trying to make up the numbers. It's sending Patriot missiles. France is sending an Aspid system. Germany is sending other bits and bobs of systems. Nobody believes that it's really comparable to the air defence system that Ukraine started the war with. All right, we will leave it there. TheDuran.Locals.com. We are on Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, and Telegram. And go to Duran Shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.